Hello and welcome to the SCTS Education Podcast. I'm Caroline Toulon, cardiothoracic trainee in the northwest of England. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Joe Mills, interventional cardiology consultant at the Liverpool Heart and Chest Hospital. We talk all about the practicalities and decision making encountered when performing percutaneous intervention for the coronary arteries. As we progress through our surgical training, sometimes finding opportunities to fully understand the spectrum of techniques involved in percutaneous intervention can be difficult. Yet this is an ever more important area for us to be aware of in order to weigh up all the options for patients and participate fully in the heart team. Dr Mills gives us great insight into how PCI has evolved, both from the point of view of technology and also knowledge of which lesions warrant intervention and how improved functional testing and imaging have contributed to these advances. So let's get started. Thank you very much for joining me on the SCTS Education Podcast. Uh, today I'm joined with Dr Joe Mills, who is a consultant cardiologist at Liverpool Heart and Chest Hospital. So, hello. Welcome. Hi, Caroline. <laughs> so, uh, that's right. I've been an interventional cardiologist here in Liverpool for 13 years now. Fantastic. And if you can tell me, what does being an interventional cardiologist actually entail from a day-to-day point of view in your job? Uh, well, the job that I do today is probably very different to the one I did when I was appointed in 2007. But essentially what pays my mortgage is... Um, delivering a certain number of cath lab sessions per year. We have an annualised job plan, so I'm involved in performing invasive coronary angiography and uh, both elective uh, and urgent and emergency percutaneous coronary intervention. So as part of a day-to-day acute coronary syndrome service, but also obviously an on-call out-of-hours service, which is directed very much towards primary PCI treatment for patients with STEMI. Uh, and then there's a, a big clinic commitment, of course, which is in, in every specialty. So we do general cardiology outpatients, which includes, of course, follow-up of our interventional patients. Um, and that's uh, a fairly big part of my job, as well as a community clinic role, which I've established here, community cardiology services in Knowsley, Wirral, and, and starting to grow in Southport. Um and I suppose on top of that, then we've got a lot of ward work now. We have an increasingly frail elderly comorbid population and um, the burden on inpatient work increases. So we have an on-call system per week and the interventionist will look after the ward patients, the CCU patients, see the ITU patients uh, on a daily or twice daily basis uh, on a rolling rotor. So those are my clinical commitments. And then obviously you can add a whole pile of management and uh, various admin and uh, CPD commitments on top of that. Mm. So in terms of the um, the cath lab side of things, um, what sort of activities are you doing? You're doing um, angiography and you're doing um, percutaneous interventions. Um, are you doing any TAVI stuff as well as that? Or does it tend to be more focused? Does it tend to be a little bit divided? Who does TAVI? Who does PCI? Yeah, so we, we tend to all, all have a, a, a sort of a sub-interventional interest. Mm-hmm. So I started the TAVI service here back in 2008-9 now uh, with colleagues. So I'm a, still an integral part of that and that's sort of probably takes up a day a week of my time in terms of either a list or an MDT or a clinic. So, but there's, there's four or five of us now involved in the, in the TAVI team. And we have other activities obviously going on in the lab. Some of my colleagues are 
structural in PFO and ASD closure or left atrial appendage occlusion devices, uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy interventions for alcohol septal ablation. Um, so there's a range and obviously complex PCI now is, is a big growing field in terms of taking on patients with really quite severe, usually chronic uh, coronary obstruction and, and reopening vessels in these patients, which is, a, which is a growing part of what we do in the cath lab. And so that is absolutely what I want to talk to you about, because I think, especially as a, as a cardiothoracic trainee, you don't necessarily get a huge amount of time observing PCI, seeing yeah. angiography and seeing what sort of interventions, what's possible with stents, when you can, when you can't stent, etc. So that's really what I want to ask you about today is sort of how, um, how you go about the decision making with angiographies and how you move through going through PCI, stents, etc, etc. So, um, you, you mentioned there that the complex PCI is becoming uh, more part of your of your sort of day to day work. So, how has that changed over time? Well, the first thing to say, I suppose, is that by and large, uh, certainly from a stable angina perspective, a lot fewer patients come to the cath lab now. Mm. A lot of assessment is done non invasively um, using ischemia testing, but also CT. Uh, which is growing, you know, exponentially, and the development of CTFFR, which is a physiological assessment or a functional assessment of the disease seen on CT, to give us an idea with assessment of symptoms and other potential ischemia testing to know whether a patient should or could even enter the cath lab and, and what you're likely to find, and and that CT will obviously also be important for people who've had previous coronary artery bypass surgery because mm-hmm. you'll will know what grafts are, are open, what are blocked, what are what are diseased, what the lemur looks like, what runoff looks like. Mm-hmm. So we'll have a lot of information before we even get to the cath lab. So with improved medical treatment, and I suppose a general belief that certainly in a stable setting for most patients, there's no prognostic benefit in the in the main for revascularization, then medical treatment has really increased a lot. Mm. So less patients are are arriving in the cath lab. And so those that do come to the cath lab, by definition, have probably got more severe symptoms or they are uh, perhaps um, got more advanced disease, uh, have failed medical therapy, um, or patients who've had previous bypass surgery and now have got grafts that have closed and an extension of their disease. And therefore, we're seeing a far more difficult population, certainly from the elective stable angina perspective. So that's what I've seen over the 13 years I've been here. I'm sure that's been mirrored across the country. So now when we enter the cath lab with these patients, usually we've got better information about what we're going to do. And so it's rarer now that we'll do standalone invasive angiography. Mm. We will do a procedure where we'll plan to do some assessment and treatment. Mm. We should know that treatment is going to be planned Uh, before we start there's Mm -hmm. no such thing as a diagnostic invasive angiogram it's not diagnostic of anything and that's something else that's changed over the last 10-15 years that's a realization now shooting the coronaries and seeing a 2d luminogram is not diagnostic of anything Mm. it just shows that you found the coronary arteries and and the position they are in relation to the heart and what vessels they supply and where the dominance is but that's it Mm. so that's also a big change so when we get into the 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 procedure now we've got more tools at our disposal to do physiological assessments in the cath lab and then a growing array of techniques to deal with more complicated disease Mm. Um, I suppose the other big change that's happened is that rather than just sort of plow on with difficult interventions 
we might make some assessment and then we might stop and then we might use the heart team mdt approach far more than we well it didn't exist before but it certainly i think now that is a very frequently used uh, option to then determine what the best strategy of treatment is mm-hmm. okay so previously it was we'll do an angiogram we'll have a look at the angiogram then we'll paint the patient back for an invasive interventional procedure after yeah. having so a look that, at that. that that would have been very much the norm mm-hmm. when i started here you know in the first part of up until perhaps 2010 mm-hmm. 2015 let's say over the last five years mm-hmm. the centers that do um, invasive angiography as standalone centers are far less mm. as much most centers now have the ability to do it PCI mm. and therefore you're doing this all in one one procedure it's better for the patient it's it's more cost effective for the for the health economy as a whole mm. um, and of course it, it reduces the risk you're only subjecting the patient to one procedure apart from uh, as opposed to two but the downside of course is that you can get caught into this sort of, well, I've seen a stenosis and I'm just mm. going to put a stent in it because mm. I've seen it and I'm going to deal with it and job done. And, yeah. and so there's a bit of care that needs to be involved. And this is where physiological assessment in the cath lab and use of the heart team is, is really crucial. And going on to the physiological assessment, so there's a few different ways of doing it as far as FFR and now IFR. Um, is uh, what's the difference between those two things and is there something is there any other physiological assessments that you tend to make so there's well it the, starts off with ct ffr so you can yes. actually do this in, in with with ct now with with a company called heartflow and that's supported by nice mm-hmm. and most centers could or should have access to that mm-hmm. then in the cath lab as you say you've got ffr and, and ifr assessment as the mainstay of the sort of useful tools to assess mm-hmm. stenosis so more essentially you'll have mild plaque disease which is fairly focal that you don't need to assess you'll also have critical visual stenoses that are either completely occlusive or or very close to being occlusive and you don't need to assess those either in in the main particularly if they're in the principal vessels but the bulk of coronary disease is somewhere in the middle it's neither critical nor is it mild and those are the those that's the disease that we probably in the past have made poor judgments as to whether they are functionally important or not Mm. and patients often don't read the textbooks and their symptoms are somewhat atypical Mm. and putting it all together functional testing done in the physiology department with exercise testing or stress echo or whatever has its own limitations so you may be in a position where you're not really sure from functional testing whether this stenosis that you're looking at is important You've got a patient perhaps with somewhat atypical symptoms and so you really want to make the best judgment. So we can pass a wire down the vessel and we can measure pressure differences and that's essentially what we're doing with both the FFR, although it stands for fractional flow reserve, it's not really about flow, it's about pressure. IFR is uh, a very similar measurement in that it is again a pressure measurement. IFR stands for instantaneous wave-free pressure ratio and they're they're slightly different techniques ffr is done by causing maximum hyperemia so you give a drug usually adenosine to maximally dilate the microcirculation and then you measure the pressure difference beyond the stenosis and see what the pressure is at the tip of the catheter so in the in the aorta at the aortoosteal junction and then you're looking at that that pressure drop so um for ffr the 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 sort of the numbers are generally a, a pressure Different. So if you divide the distal pressure by the proximal pressure, if the ratio is 0.75 or less, then that is you know, 
very confidently a functionally significant stenosis. Mm. If it's 0.8 or less, it's, it's most likely to be a functional stenosis. Mm. And if it's above 0.8, it probably isn't. Mm-hmm. For an IFR uh, estimation, it's slightly easier because you don't have to give any drugs. So you pass the wire down and the measurement is done instantaneously without the need to produce maximum hyperemia. Mm. So they don't give any drugs. And some people don't like adenosine. Mm. If you've got bad asthma, it's just a little bit more time to set up in the lab. So instantaneous uh, pressure measurement using IFR uh, can give you uh, a value. And, the, and 0.89, again, is this sort of cut-off holy grail. If it's below 0.89, that ratio, then we would say that's a functionally significant stenosis. And if it's above, we'd say it most likely isn't. There's going to be a grey zone in both. And with all of these, you're taking an interpretation along with the patient's symptoms, other information that you might have. So no one ischemia testing or, or functional test is perfect they're Mm. they're all flawed Mm -hmm. and there's various reasons why your ifr and ffr may be falsely negative or falsely positive Mm. but if they're done well and they're thought about in the context of the patient their symptoms and the other features of their clinical presentation then it's a very good guide as to lesions that you should intervene upon and from a surgical perspective vessels that you should graft so for example if you look at ffr assessments of potentially graftable vessels so the old view in cardiac surgery is if the stenosis is 50 percent or more we should stick a graft on it Mm. well what we know now is is that if we measure ffr particularly and if the if the ffr value is certainly less than 0.75 there's a very good chance that graft will survive Mm. if the ffr is above 0.75 and certainly if it's above 0.8 there's a much higher chance that one year that graft will fail mm. and that's going to be due to competitive flow because it's not a functionally significant stenosis. So if you if you revascularize people both in terms of stents and grafts in those lesion in those arteries and lesions where you've got functionally significant disease, you'll put less grafts and put in less stents, mm. but you'll get better outcomes. Yeah. So it's a, a pretty good tool. Mm. The data is very persuasive. There is some argument still about is IFR as good as FFR but I think as people are getting used to using it there's a there's a general belief that certainly when you're not in any gray zone areas of IFR you you, you can take it as, as red mm-hmm. if you're uncertain then you perform both and, yeah. and and that's something that we do quite commonly yeah uh, I, I thought it was a uh... When I was having a little look and refreshing myself about mm. what they were, um, I was. Uh, I think one of the things that I found most interesting was I was thinking I hadn't really thought why FFR might not be totally accurate. Yeah. I thought, oh, you know, we get a number from FFR and it, that's it and it tells us everything. Um, and then I read that the sensitivity was around 88%. I don't know if that's an exact, but, you know, spe- uh, sensitivity. But specificity is like 100%, but sensitivity was like 88%. And I thought, oh. Well, I'll stop yeah, you there because yeah. the, there is, I mean, although in the original paper, mm which is back in 96 where it was validated. But bear in mind, this is validated in just something like 45, 50 patients. Mm, okay. And for, for any test to be compared, you, you're assuming that what you're comparing it against is 100% reliable. Mm. Well, that isn't true for a start. Mm-hmm. So FFR was validated against ischemia testing in the form of a treadmill test, a dibutamine stress echo and some form of thallium, you know, a nuclear perfusion uh, stress test. Well, all of those tests are flawed in themselves. Mm. Now, if you had one positive result in any of those tests 
and your FFR was also positive. That was mm-hmm. deemed to be a, you know, a positive result and reinforce the, the, um, the, the usefulness of FFR. Mm-hmm. But in, in reality, of course, there's a number of reasons why you can get both false positive and false negative. So mm-hmm. I'll give you a couple of examples. So you can get a false positive result on a stenosis that probably isn't functionally significant. Mm-hmm but you get a low value of FFR, let's say 0.75 or less, Mm -hmm. because the vessel that you're testing is collateralizing another huge territory. Mm -hmm. You might have a block right coronary artery with huge collaterals developed from the LAD. So that stenosis at the top of the LAD in the proximal LAD isn't functionally significant Mm -hmm. on its own, but because now that territory is supplying a huge area of myocardium, Mm -hmm. your FFR is is abnormally low, mm. but the stenosis itself isn't important. Similarly, myocardial mass is a big factor. So mm-hmm. if you have very pronounced left ventricular hypertrophy, mm-hmm. um, this is to some degree why patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or very severe hypertension can just get angina, mm-hmm. but they don't have any coronary limiting stenoses. Mm-hmm. And it's due to myocardial mass mm-hmm. and, and you know pure flow and perfusion dynamics. If you have such a huge amount of mass of myocardium to perfuse, doesn't matter how big your coronary artery is, it just can't perfuse it under certain levels of, of, of uh, demand mm. and you get angina. Mm. So uh, there's a number of reasons why you might get false positive FFR. Mm. In terms of other reasons, you can just muck it up. So it, it's a it's not a, a necessarily such an easy technique to perform in the cath lab. So we have to equalise the pressures. We have to check for drift in the pressure once the procedure has been performed. And if you fail to do that properly, again, you can get a, get false positives. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the, the classic reason for getting a false negative, of course, is you don't induce this maximum hyperemia. Right. So that's probably maybe slightly less of an issue with IFR, although there's other problems with IFR. But with FFR, if you don't get maximum hyperemia, then you may get a false negative uh, results and of course the you know the you you won't know that somebody has got for example microvascular dysfunction mm. and in those people it's going to be very difficult to get maximum hyperemia so if you've got very severe hypertension diabetes other reasons to have microvascular dysfunction then your ffr may not be uh, 100% reliable mm. so it's a good test but it's not a perfect test and that's yeah. why i say it has to be thought about yeah. You know, as a as part of your jigsaw make yeah. decision making process. And if there's one result that you're thinking, oh, that doesn't totally fit in with what I'm expecting, then yeah. that's useful to recognise that it might be because there's so a reason that it's not. We've yeah. just had a, a yeah. patient in the cath lab recently with a block graft who had surgery on the basis of some FFR measurements. Mm-hmm. The graft has gone down. Mm-hmm. We've repeated the the FFR. Mm-hmm. It's completely normal. Yeah. And so you know the, these yeah. things happen. You know yeah. it does happen. So. It's just really important. There's, there's some there's some technical issues with it, and it's why, from certainly from a surgeon's perspective, or when you're as a group at a at a heart team or MDT, you're absolutely right. You you have to sort of okay. Well, that's a very interesting FFR value, but that that disease really doesn't look to marry with that. Are we absolutely sure? Um, but equally, what we've learned is that visually we can look at stenosis and think that that does not look flow limiting, but the FFR and the FR are quite convincingly flow limiting but of course if the patient's got good going symptoms and they're convincing maybe there's been another form of ischemia testing that's also suggestive then yeah yeah, okay that's that's probably right we know that diffuse disease can produce pressure drops that are significant even though our eyes may be drawn to what looks like fairly modest stenosis so these are all the things that we'll learn yeah do you think it's been quite enlightening having the ffr results as well as seeing 
visually what the angiography shows is it kind of giving you an oh hang on a second I didn't think that would be as significant as it is and yeah so we've, we've we've done mm. studies where you've you've mm. had the angiogram mm. and you've you've known the FFR values and you've asked cardiologists to independently who don't know the results to look at a stenosis and just say is that is that functionally significant or not mm. and and it's almost a flip of a coin mm. if you take yeah. an intermediate stenosis mm-hmm. and you ask someone to say is that going to be significant in terms of FFR result it is almost like a flip of a coin. Not quite, but it's almost yeah. that bad. So what we've learned is saying that's tight or that's significant mm-hmm. are almost words that should be removed from the lexicon of mm-hmm. both cardiologists but also cardiac yeah. surgeons because yeah. it's it's nonsense. Yeah. It's absolute nonsense. Mm-hmm. If it's critical mm-hmm. and it's in a main vessel, so in the LAD, your principal circle or a major OM, or your right, which is a dominant, you know, if your right's dominant, and it's critical, then that's different. Yeah. And if it's, well, there's a bit of sort of irregularity, mm. that's fine as well. But anything in the middle, if you find yourself saying the words, you know, tight or mm. significant or severe, go and give yourself a good slap in the mirror yeah. and think, <laughs> I'm talking absolute codswallop, yeah. and I need to get to science rather than you know, oculus stenotic yeah. rubbish. And uh, one of the other things I was going to just go on to is, with you're saying about now you're seeing more complex PCI, what's the difference between a simple PCI or simple PCI yeah. and a complex PCI? What's the kind of, is the difference when you see those patients? What would you be well, and, and, and that's probably very similar in terms mm. of surgery. So one would be the patient's profile, their clinical you know, baggage that they bring with them to the mm-hmm. cath lab. So don't think for one minute just because we're not putting them to sleep, putting them on bypass, yeah. that, that things can't go horribly wrong. Yeah. Uh, they, they do. Renal dysfunction, people who've had previous stroke, people with poor lung disease, lying them flat, filling them with contrast, LV impairment. These are all bad news for, for the procedure in terms of its pote- potential complexity or what could go wrong. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the coronary anatomy, which is probably more relevant to us in terms of complexity, um, we're seeing a lot more chronic occlusion work Mm. so by and large um, chronic occlusion is going to be a more challenging procedure not not necessarily always but but in the main it will be and we're seeing a lot more calcification in Mm. vessels so not always older patients but people with diabetes renal disease tend to get more calcium in their vessels but obviously age is a big factor so as our population ages we're doing a lot more interventions in older patients you know both elective and in acute coronary syndrome work so using adjuncts to deal with both the CTO work, which is more an elective intervention, I would say, but certainly the calcified lesion in in our sort of becoming more the mainstay of what we're dealing with is, is a real challenge for us as interventionists. Mm-hmm. Now, we have some great tools. Rotational atherectomy is a, is, a, is a tool that's been used increasingly. Mm-hmm. We have better balloons that have... Uh, you know, some kind of scoring on the outside that can uh, cause disruption of the calcified and, and fibrocalcific plaque. And we now have this shockwave technology. So from a surgical perspective, you'll know what, you know, lithotripsy is and mm. the treatment of, uh, of, of renal stones and the use of lithotripsy. So this is the same technology, but on a balloon mm-hmm. that we can deliver to the vessel wall and actually sort of fragment the calcium within the wall mm. And we use this both in TAVI in the big iliac vessels where we've got constrictive calcium, but also there are balloons for the coronary arteries. So if you can get a balloon into the stenosis, then um, 
you, you know you can deliver this technology one of the things that i was wondering is is there any way of capturing that calcium of stopping it from going distally so what you're talking <laughs> yeah, about is yeah. sort of embolic protection yeah, and there's a history yeah. of that in intervention we yeah. used to put little baskets distally in vein grafts when we were dealing with these nasty degenerative vein grafts because mm. we felt they were all full of thrombotic athro thrombotic material but the evidence wasn't great that it made much difference if you even if you did capture stuff mm. um, in the tavi world there is now a device that you can put across the principal arteries to the to the brain mm. to try and reduce embolic stroke mm. and but the evidence again is, is not strong and yeah. in fact there's there's a bhf uh, funded trial that's headed up from the from the guys in oxford that mm. we're going to be part of nationally in randomizing patients to have this embolic protection device against stroke uh, or not in the case of TAVI patients and then we'll know whether there's actually any genuine evidence because there's a real uh, you know trend in interventional cardiology that you get a little toy and you want to play with it and use it but actually there's no good evidence that it makes any difference so we've got to be careful and now in terms of um, what we see in terms of the shockwave balloon interestingly it's slightly different to rotation atherectomy. Atherectomy is a drill. We're, we're drilling it and we're, we are sending, showering very tiny particles yeah. distally. You probably couldn't put anything that would stop those. Yeah. And we do not find in general that that is a big deal. Mm. There may be some transient reduction in flow. We may see some transient reduction in heart rate, mm. but it, it tends to recover. The microvasculature is, is amazing yeah. uh, in recovery. In terms of shockwave balloon technology, because we're not actually... Um, uh, sort of traumatizing the anything as much it's more of a you're sort of fragmenting it in the wall yeah. uh, but there's less material we, we don't necessarily see this sort of embolization of material it kind of sounds it reminds me of like um, a sort of fasciotomy where you're making scars yeah. in the in the solid stuff to allow the whole exactly. thing to expand that's exactly yeah. right yeah. yeah that's exactly right yeah so um, in terms of, um, there's a few other techniques that you're using. So IVUS, the intravascular ultrasound, ultrasound and OCT. Um, OCT, which I always forget and I have to write down what it yeah, stands optical for. Optical coherence <laughs> yeah, tomography. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, when do you use those techniques? Um, is it every time? Because it's mainly with stent implantation, I get the impression, but I, I'm not 100% sure. So yeah, so well, the, the, the adage would be you use FFR and IFR to tell you whether you should Put a stent in or it's mm-hmm. whether it's appropriate to put a stent in and you use ivus and oct to tell you whether you've done a good job with the stent and whether you need to do more to optimize the stent result mm-hmm. that that's a very broad brush statement mm-hmm. but there are plenty of centers in the world where that is what they do and they would take some form of intravascular imaging whether it's ivus or oct mm-hmm. to to look at the stent and examining how opposed it is uh, is it the right size um, you know, are there, are there any deformity to the structure, any fracture within the stent. So that would be the norm in lots of centres. But of course, you know, it's not a no-risk intervention. You're adding to the time of the case, you're adding to the cost of the case. Um, and certainly with with OCT, it's a slightly more involved process to get the imaging. Um, so there's, there's a small risk of vessel dissection and so mm. forth with OCT. So. And, of course, you can't see the very proximal vessel with OCT. You, you would need IVUS to look at the more proximal vessel just because of the, the technique, the way that the, the, the catheter works and the way that you have to inject contrast and fill the vessel with contrast when you're taking the imaging. Whereas, OC, whereas with IVUS, the, 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 the IVUS catheter just sits there and you can just look real time and, and pull it back or automatically pull it back and see the vessel right back into the guide. Mm-hmm. Um, so the slightly different techniques, OCT has a much greater resolution, if you like, so it can see 
uh, much smaller, finer detail. So you can you can really see the struts of the stent. You can see endothelial coverage of the stent. In theory, you may be able to identify small dissection. Some some people feel that with really good OCT, they can even identify plaques that have ruptured within the wall of the vessel so that you can make a diagnosis yes this is ACS as opposed to some other clinical entity mm-hmm. so there are like in everything there's real advocates of OCT mm-hmm. most people feel more comfortable with IMUS it's been around longer the, the data is probably better people are more um, feel more comfortable interpreting the imaging I suppose mm-hmm. but both have pros and cons in terms of their value what I would say is that most Big centres certainly in the NA, in an NHS setting would use them in a limited fashion and would have quite specific reasons to use them. So in, in our centre here, if you came back with, with stent failure, mm-hmm. particularly if it was within the first year, mm-hmm. it, whether it was an, an acute coronary event or an elective event, we would image the, the stent either with OCT or with IVUS. Mm-hmm. If um, we're doing left main stem work where we are really, really concerned about undersizing and not mm-hmm. appreciating the anatomy properly, we would IVUS the vessel before and after stent implant and, and make sure that we've got a good result and, and optimise our, our result with the use of either, with, with IVUS certainly for the left main. Um, and as I say, there might be other sort of funny circumstances where you may choose to image because maybe the diagnosis is slightly unclear or mm-hmm. visually you see something funny on the angiogram, you don't know what it is. Yeah. Or is there a dissection at the outflow of my stent? I want mm-hmm. to image that. Does that, and you, you could use either OCT or, or IVUS to, mm-hmm. to look at that. So there's a number of indications that we would use it for, mm-hmm. but they are not we do not use this as a matter of routine and I have to say if you look at general data there's not a huge lot of persuasive evidence that you would need to use this for every single Mm -hmm. um, procedure but I think you know in an ideal world if you had the time resources were unlimited Mm -hmm. you could make a really good argument for for using some form of intravascular imaging for Mm -hmm. for, certainly for most patients that you're going to do some form of stent implant. Mm -hmm. And one thing that you mentioned just then was about um, if there's ruptures or something or, or something's wrong or the stent is undersized. What can you do in those circumstances? You, um, um, don't think. Can you take the stents out and put a fresh one in? Or so are you, you can't remove them, but it, it yeah. depends on what what's happened. So mm. the most uh, heinous crime in intervention, certainly coronary intervention, is that you implant a stent that you cannot adequately expand mm. because you haven't prepared this fibrocalcified lesion adequately. And then when you try to put the stent in, it just can't expand. It's completely mm-hmm. uh, constrained by mm-hmm. the rigid calcium within the wall. Mm-hmm. And that may be a focal thing. So you get kind of like an apple core effect within the stent or the whole stent is underexpanded. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, you can put two smaller stents in, of course, as you described, Caroline. And that generally you can then just put a bigger stent. So you get a mm-hmm. stent sandwich yeah. and you can expand a bigger stent and mm-hmm. fracture the old stent and and essentially your big stent become becomes the norm Mm. so that's not necessarily too difficult to Mm. deal with but if you've if you've not expanded the stent because you didn't prepare the lesion Mm. that is a problem and prior to shockwave it was almost untreatable Mm. you could put the drill through Mm -hmm. and drill your stent struts and hope to fracture the calcium on the outside it was a pretty hairy thing to do Mm. but people have done it with good results Um, but now we have a shockwave balloon, mm-hmm. so we can put that within the underexpanded stent. We can deliver the shockwave energy. We can d- disturb and, and fracture the calcium on the outside, mm-hmm. and then we can appropriately expand the stent with a high-pressure balloon. So right. there's good techniques that we can use. Um, but of course, if you present with a 
with stent thrombosis, then you know there's about a one in three chance, maybe more than that, that you won't survive. So you never got the time for the interventionist to make up for the error they made in the first place. Mm. Um, and is that one of the main causes of stent rethrombosis? Is that uh, just the fact that it's not expanded, or, or are there other multiple factors that are there more common things that pe- that cause? Yeah, so stent thrombosis. Mm-hmm. For, well, firstly, to say it's it, it, it's still pretty rare. Fortunately, yes. it's pretty rare, mm-hmm. um, and the factors involved are numerous. So there's clinical factors, of course. So people's compliance with their antiplatelet therapy or people bleeding and then being their antiplatelet therapy being withdrawn soon after stent implant. That is a, a very, that's one of the most common reasons for stent thrombosis to occur. So there's a lot around the antiplatelet therapy. Mm-hmm. Your indication to have your stent, of course, is a big deal. So in the setting of STEMI, where it's a very prothrombotic mm-hmm. milieu at the time, but also within the s- subsequent days, Stent thrombosis is also much more common in taking into account also that we often undersize stents when we're doing STEMI because you don't know the full size of the vessel because you haven't got flow-mediated dilatation. We know that our stents are often undersized, so you take that a prothrombotic state and an undersized stent, hey, presto, not surprising, you get stent thrombosis. But we're not seeing every week a stent thrombosis in this hospital it's actually still really really quite unusual and that i think is because of the antiplatelet therapies that we use and the antithrombotics at the time of the procedure so the factors will as you say also be in terms of the the technical results so longer stents in smaller vessels are more likely to block if you couldn't expand the stent because of calcium and an underprepared lesion Mm -hmm. that's a factor and undersized stents Mm -hmm. so those are probably the, the the principal procedure or, or, or vessel related uh, factors but it can just happen yeah. and uh, but it is fortunately quite rare and just on the subject of stents so it's kind of migrated through the sort of the bare metal stent to the drug eluting stent and now are there some biodegradable stents yeah out? so uh, there is the, is that what's kind of the next thing or is that something that's already happened? yeah so there's there's uh, there's been great interest in having stents where you where the, where the polymer and the actual stent material mm. dissolves because that's thought to be what what sort of promotes this potential long-term risk of stent thrombosis but in fact the technology is relatively poor and in mm. fact these stents did not turn out to have any major advantage over the, the, the modern generation of drug eluting stents mm. so they've largely fallen out of favor there may be some very small indications so the one that springs to mind is that if you had a relatively young patient and there was some reason why you had to do an intervention in an LAD and it was right in the zone where you might in the future think this person might need a lemograft mm-hmm. in the future, mm-hmm. that might be an indication to use a uh, bioabsorbable, um, fully degradable stent. Yeah. But I have to say the evidence for both their implant and their efficacy mm-hmm. in the sort of short and medium term is not great. So. Mm-hmm. They've fallen out of favour at the moment. Whether this, and I'm sure there's very clever stent companies working mm-hmm. on, you know, better materials, better uh, substances to to make these devices in the future. Because I think it probably is the holy grail, isn't mm-hmm. it? That you you put a stent in, you expand the vessel, you mm-hmm. appropriately risk factor manage somebody. They reduce their atherometrous uh, burden or their atherometrous risk mm-hmm. uh, or progression. And then the stent nicely dissolves over time. How brilliant would that be? So, but I, we're not we're not there yet. Certainly not in technology that's worth putting into a patient. Mm-hmm. And I was just going to ask, in terms of acute phase um, and use of uh, balloon or it, the sort of um, 
balloon angioplasty versus stents versus doing nothing how do you how do you make those decisions as to what's what you're gonna uh, what you're gonna do what's the differential or how do you differentiate um, so well some of it will depend on the clinical condition of the patient mm-hmm. so of course if if this is cardiogenic shock or most STEMI patients where they're obviously having myocardial infarction there and then due to vessel occlusion, you're going to get on and reopen the vessel. And of course, restoring TIMI3 flow, so normal flow is the holy grail of that intervention. And there is a really good argument that if you can do that with either thrombectomy or balloon mm-hmm. uh, dilatation of a lesion, that bringing them back and deferring their PCI mm-hmm. for a few days is not an unreasonable thing to do. But I suppose pragmatically, that is something that we do quite rarely. Mm -hmm. We would usually stent that vessel, that lesion, so that we feel that the the risk of of re-occlusion is low and the patient Mm -hmm. can then go home within 48, 72 hours. If they have more complex disease that's in the non-infarct-related vessel, then that can create some thought processes. Mm -hmm. So generally speaking, if we pick up bystander left main or very severe proximal LAD disease and they come in with, let's say, a circumflex or right coronary artery culprit, again, it will depend on the, on the clinical condition. And, of course, if they are frail and elderly, you're going to deal with their culprit vessels so that they can be stabilised and, and discharged home. But if you're talking about somebody younger or somebody who may benefit prognostically from complete revascularization, then there's, there's got to be a thought process. Mm-hmm. It's relatively unusual to not deal with the culprit vessel, mm-hmm. either with ballooning and stenting, usually both, um, and then to have some discussion, maybe a heart team discussion while they're in, to say, well, you know, should they have surgery in the future? Mm-hmm. Can they go home, recover from their infarcts over the next two and three months, and then have their left-sided grafts, for mm-hmm. example? Um, so there's a, there are some patients that provide you with a more uh, difficult thought mm-hmm. process when you're in the cath lab if it's a sort of a non-STEMI setting so not a STEMI you haven't got a, a block vessel that you've got to deal with there and then then I think the heart team discussion is really valuable so unless it's really clear from the patient's uh, sort of condition mm-hmm. their profile that they're never going to be a surgical candidate mm-hmm. I think most of the time when we get more complex multi-vessel disease we, mm-hmm. we want to take that either the heart team discussion or you make a decision that surgical revascularization is definitely going to be the most appropriate strategy and it's only when when you guys actually think well now we've had a really good think about the patient or now we've seen their chest x-ray or their ct or whatever we're not so keen to to do it then we have have a rethink so it depends on the clinical setting depends on the patient profile um but yeah so the coronary anatomy will make us think about what we do but i think as a default particularly now we try and deal with the coronary lesions that are the culprit and any critical bystander disease as an inpatient if we can Mm -hmm. um, particularly if we feel it's suitable for PCI Mm -hmm. but every patient will be slightly different well thank you so much thank you very much for joining me absolute pleasure so thank you again to Dr Joe Mills for joining me on this podcast today I really hope that you've enjoyed this episode and thank you so much for listening. As always, please do get in touch with any comments or suggestions at our email address, which is sctseducationpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter using the handle at podcast underscore SCTS. Thanks very much and see you next time.